This is a Federal News Network podcast. My next guest spent 30 years in the federal government, including as the CIA's National Intelligence Officer for East Asia. An expert on China, he recently retired and joined the Center for the National Interest, a think tank devoted to, in its own words, a voice for strategic realism in foreign policy. Joining me now, Dr. Paul Heer. Dr. Heer, good to have you on. Oh, it's good to be here. Thank you, Tom. And I guess China is looming very large in the national consciousness at the moment. And I can actually remember when President Nixon went to China and how astounded we all were at the images of him with Mao Zedong and using chopsticks and landing there and so forth. And so much history has happened. From your point of view as an expert from the CIA standpoint, the intelligence standpoint, how should we be thinking about China now, given the coronavirus and the military rivalry and everything else going on? Well, actually, I think in addition to my time at the intelligence community, I am actually trained as a diplomatic historian. So I think my first answer to your question is we should be thinking about China in historical terms. Since Nixon's opening, what, 50 years ago now, we've been on a strategic engagement process that's led to, you know, a relatively constructive relationship. But unfortunately, I think what we see now is because of different historical trends and developments over the last decade, we're kind of in a downspin there. In fact, an accelerated downward spiral just over the last several years. Uh, And I think that's a function of both China's historical trajectory and our relative historical trajectory. I think there's just a lot of attention growing. And I think that, frankly, the COVID-19 crisis is only accelerating the problematic elements of that process. It seems like the federal government almost has to have several approaches to China at the same time. I mean, in some ways, it's a military rival and trying to push us out of the South China Sea. At the same time, there's great scientific cooperation that can happen. And yet at the same time, there are scientists that are being paid off secretly by China. And so it's not really one thing, China. And maybe that's what we're having difficulty with. Oh, that's certainly part of it. I mean, it's a huge, complex relationship with different components. And I think one of the things that uh, is really in demand now is a kind of a coordinated effort across all those different sectors. You know, China certainly is a growing military and strategic challenge to us, has been for decades now, a growing economic interdependence. There are certainly shared transnational issues that we need to cooperate with the Chinese on. But there's a lot of kind of historical baggage and strategic mistrust between the two sides. It makes it hard for, frankly, coordination of bilateral policy within each government and between the two capitals. And how do you think China views the United States? Because we have these really wide political swings from administration to administration. And in this case, even some wide swings within the span of a given administration. Whereas, you know, you look back at Xi Jinping in many ways, it's just like Mao, only with Savile Row suits. I think the Chinese view us, view the United States as kind of simultaneously a strategic rival and as a relationship which is vitally important to China's economic development and its uh, international credibility. I mean, because of some of the historical baggage, I think the Chinese and the kind of ideological backdrop of the relationship, the Chinese appear to believe that we are trying to contain them the way that we contained the Soviet Union. But they also have tried to make an effort to overcome that because, as I said, the interdependence between the two sides. So, I think one of the catchphrases in the Chinese for the last several decades is that this is a relationship that is going to impose struggle upon the Chinese, but they can't afford to let it break into a rift because it needs to move forward. So it's a balancing act for them, and I think, frankly, it's a balancing act for us in in exchange. 
And we should note that the Center for the National Interest was originally started under the auspices of Richard Nixon, then was part of his library. Now it's independent. But the whole point there, strategic realism, I mean, in many ways, I think one of Nixon's original objectives was to bring China not only closer to us, but simultaneously away from Russia. And that seems to have shifted again, too, hasn't it? Oh, very much so. Partly because that common enemy isn't there anymore. You know, I I think one of the things that was central to Nixon's thinking at the time, which is still relevant today, and I think actually to the center's interest, I mean, one, I think, sub-element of strategic realism is a desire not to let ideological prejudices or baggages get in the way of a pragmatic and realistic relationship. And I think that was one of the things clearly that Nixon was trying to do back in the early 70s. And that's frankly been a recurring theme in the U.S.-China relationship ever since. We've had ideological and political and diplomatic differences. I mean, you know, our developmental and governance systems are radically different and are really in international competition right now. And in fact, I want to come back to that because I think that's one of the central problems we're facing now. But I think both sides recognize there is a need for cooperation. And I think that's one of the core elements of realism, that you have to find a way to work with each other in spite of some of the ideological constraints and challenges that hamper the relationship. We're speaking with Dr. Paul here. He's a former CIA national intelligence officer, now a distinguished fellow with the Center for the National Interest. And I guess maybe we could probably do as governmental entities in the United States do a better job at sorting out what it is we might be able to convince the Chinese of and what we may not. The two examples that come to mind are theft of intellectual property is something perhaps we can control in them, if you that's the right word, versus how big a navy they ought to be building. Yeah, well, those are certainly two subsets of the competition between the two sides. And as I mentioned a second ago, I think what we're really facing is a comprehensive strategic competition between the United States and China. I think, frankly, the likes of which we haven't seen before, because the Chinese bring a lot more to the table internationally than the Soviet Union was ever able to muster because of the differences in their economic strength. But the two elements you mentioned, uh, intellectual property theft, I think that's a core element of the kind of strategic economic competition between the two sides, the systemic competition, which I frankly think is a greater challenge for us from China than the traditional security military competition. I mean, the latter is certainly there, and the Chinese are building military capacity at an accelerated rate have been for the last couple of decades, both for the purpose of asserting themselves as a military power in terms of international stature, but obviously from their perspective to defend their interests. But I think the more fundamental and the more novel nature of the Chinese challenge is on the economic and science and technology realm, and that's where the IPR issue comes in and the cyber issue and some of these others. Because it seems like the only tools we have are not that we can convince them that respect for intellectual property and theft of others is not something they should be doing. All we really have is cybersecurity tools and law enforcement to stop it. But it doesn't really go the next step to convince them that maybe there's a better way to use intellectual property of the two nations. Yeah, I mean, we've had some halting success and the Chinese understand the issues. And there is kind of a balance sheet in the relationship. Sometimes we've used other elements of bilateral cooperation as leverage in terms of trying to promote better Chinese behavior in the cyber and IPR realms. But I think it just becomes more problematic because the Chinese have a growing level of leverage in the relationship, really. Uh, That's one thing that we haven't seen before. 
I think they're trying to, to you know, the, it does matter to the Chinese how they're perceived internationally in terms of their reputation. But frankly, they can be very, well, mercenary might be too strong of a word, but they see what they're doing in the cyber realm and in the IPL realm as legitimate elements of their pursuit of their interests and their levers of national power. I think it's taken a longer time to socialize them into international standards and international law. I mean, they're certainly behind in our perception, their compliance with the rules. But again, to answer your question, I think it's part of the challenge is, is trying to influence their behavior in these sectors through a cost-benefit analysis and using the leverage we have on things they want and other elements of the relationship. In your experience, how well do the elements of the federal government coordinate? I mean, you come from the CIA standpoint, which is close to the military, but not exactly that. And then there's the State Department. How well do they all play from the same music sheet? In your experience? Well, I think it ebbs and flows, obviously, because, you know, it's just a multifaceted bureaucracy and a multifaceted relationship that different elements are engaged in. I mean, I've retired from government a few years ago now, and coordination has traditionally been pretty well. I, 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 you know, in my experience, uh, I mean, I work primarily in the foreign policy realm, obviously. So I was involved very much in providing intelligence support to the National Security Council and the State Department and the Pentagon, you know, the key players in foreign policy issues. But I think when you broaden the scope, the National Security Council, traditionally, its role has been to coordinate all of these elements of the relationship. You have people that are engaged in the economic side and the legal side and the S&T side, the human rights issues. I think it's gotten more difficult to coordinate uh, across the government in terms of the elements of the relationship with China, just through the diversity of it. All right. And uh, let me ask you this. How do you think that the relationship and the functionality of that relationship will change once, and hopefully it will pass, the coronavirus issue is behind us? Well, that's hard to say. I think it's really too early to tell what impact this is going to have on the relationship. I think there's two countervailing trends right now. And I think the prevailing one, unfortunately, frankly, is just quite negative. I mean, the trajectory of the relationship over the last couple of years, even before COVID-19 inserted itself into the equation, was increasingly problematic because of the trade war, because of increasingly assertive Chinese behavior that's been perceived as expansionist or uh, aggressive. And I think that tendency has been reinforced by the way the COVID-19 pandemic has evolved. Clearly, the Chinese mishandled elements of the early part of the process in ways which have exacerbated the problem elsewhere. And I think the problems that we've perceived in the way the Chinese have dealt with it, frankly, both internally and externally, have reinforced suspicions uh, and resentment and really hostile attitudes toward the Chinese. The other trend, frankly, though, or the other opportunity, I think, is that if there was ever a time where U.S.-China cooperation was imperative, this is it, because I think it's just incredibly important that the two sides come together to investigate, you know, the origins of the virus, and more importantly, how we can best mitigate and and defeat it. I mean, there's Chinese medical expertise that can be brought into international collaboration, just physical containment efforts. So I think really that we're going to go one way or the other. I mean, I think either the COVID crisis is going to continue to exacerbate tensions in the relationship and accelerate really an increasing hostility, which it's almost on the verge of becoming, or Both sides are going to recognize that this is the moment where we need to focus on the cooperative aspects of the relationship and move forward there. I'm hopeful that the latter happens because I think it provides an exit ramp to the trend that we've been on in the relationship for the last couple of years. 
But so far, the ind- indicators are, are very problematic. And if you would, just briefly tell us what you will be doing at the Center for the National Interest as their main Asia expert, sounds like. Well, I won't be their exclusive main Asia expert. There's other folks there, and uh, we hope to bring on some more. But I'm really excited about this opportunity to contribute my experience and my expertise on China and, frankly, broader East Asian issues, you know, along the strategic realist analytical direction. But I'll be doing some regular writing, but also be actively participating in an expansion of events at the center directed at bringing larger people and a larger group of folks into analytical exchanges and such, talking about the future of of China, the U.S.-China relationship, and how that plays out both within the East Asia region and globally. Both events and written products and uh, other media appearances as well. You've had a pretty interesting career. Yes, I have, actually. It's been quite exciting. As an Iowa boy, 40 years ago, I never could have anticipated it. But uh, I spent about 30 years at the CIA as an East Asia analyst. As you mentioned, uh, the end of that my career culminated in my eight years as the National Intelligence Officer for East Asia, which actually was originally a CIA position, but is now part of the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, where I was centrally involved in interagency analysis across the intelligence community uh, on China and other East Asian issues. Since retirement, I spent some time at the Center for International Studies at MIT, then as an adjunct professor at George Washington University. But I've remained engaged as a consultant back to the elements of the government, and now I'm really looking forward to melding that all together in, the, in my capacity as a fellow at the Center for the National Interest to continue contributing to that discussion. Dr. Paul here is a former CIA National Intelligence Officer for East Asia, and now he's Distinguished Fellow at the Center for the National Interest. Thanks so much for joining me. Oh, thank you very much, Tom. It's been a pleasure. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or Podcast One. <coughs> Cough and cold season is here. Introducing Ricola Max Throat Care, Ricola's most powerful drop yet. It's the best of Swiss nature wrapped around a powerful liquid menthol center for maximum relief from your worst cough and sore throat. Maximum nature for maximum relief. Try the new Ricola Max now, available in the cold and cough aisle. Ricola. It's in our nature. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit LiveXLive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.